You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Professor Michael Cronin from Trinity College Dublin. His lecture, Transversal Subjectivity and the Transitional University, was given as part of The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Boundaries, Transgression and Liminality in 21st Century Scholarship, the UCD Humanities Institute Postgraduate Scholars Conference, which took place on the 27th of September 2018. Uh, thank you, uh, Anna, and thank you, David, uh, for inviting me here uh, to this uh, day because I suppose one of the kind of unique privileges I feel as a speaker is to be able to speak to uh, the, the rising generation of uh, scholars and inquirers uh, and, I hope, uh, activists uh, in uh, our society. Um, in the introductory uh, remarks, Anna talked about, if you like, my strong interest uh, in uh, translation. And I think the interest in translation is partly as a way, as a sort of an instrument of looking at what happens uh, when we move between uh, languages, uh, cultures, uh, different areas of of knowledge, and and so on. So what I'm going to try and do um, in this afternoon's uh, lecture is I want to begin by by sketching what I see as a kind of the the three-stage uh, development uh, of universities uh, and then suggest a possible uh, fourth stage. Uh, and then I want to look more closely at one or two core concepts, it seems to me, around the notion of transmutation, transition, uh, translation, and uh, how these uh, feed into a part of the uh, current uh, ecological uh, crisis that uh, we are facing into, and at least in this country, uh, blindly uh, ignoring. We just ramp up the emissions and come what, come what may. Um, I want to begin then with uh, the illustrious uh, Ernst Hobbe uh, Cursus, um, his, uh, his famous work on European literature and the Latin uh, Middle Ages, where he claimed that European uh, universities uh, were, I quote, the original creations of the Middle Ages. So the distinctiveness for these institutions, for uh, Curtius, uh, lay uh, in both their kind of wetware uh, and their their hardware. Um, The wetware, insofar as they were a community uh, of teachers and uh, scholars, uh, uh, Universitatus Magistrorum et Studientium, uh, and hardware in the form of the uh, the lecterns, uh, the libraries, and the private mail systems uh, that were often a feature uh, of these uh, universities at the the time. Um, So though these kind of uh, emergent universities in uh, Bologna, uh, Paris, uh, Oxford, uh, Prague and elsewhere uh, had largely originated from pre-existing monasteries or uh, cathedral schools, uh, they represented the beginning, if you like, of a kind of sundering of education uh, from the kind of clerical hegemony uh, that had prevailed uh, before. That had been a hallmark of Western Christendom uh, for, for centuries. So even if the clergy would, consider to, uh, would continue to uh, exercise considerable influence, the university became increasingly aligned uh, with uh, secular power and uh, sovereigns were very quick to spot the 
uh, advantages in having an educated class that was prepared to support its economic, social and military uh, interests against those of an often predatory uh, papacy. Thus, we might uh, label uh, this first form of university uh, organisation uh, the monarchical uh, university. Uh, to indicate, if you like, the nature of ducal uh, or regal uh, patronage that allows the universities to develop an autonomous uh, identity uh, outside the perimeter fences of ecclesiastical institutions. So in terms of knowledge organisation, I think it's important to remember that a crucial element of continuity uh, was the transmission of Latin manuscripts, uh, which permitted the translatio uh, studiorum, the carrying of classical antiquity uh, to the high Middle Ages and uh, beyond. But of course, it wasn't just enough to store this uh, knowledge. It had to be transmitted, it had to be processed, and it had to be recorded. So uh, the data processing uh, lecture... Uh, the uh, data storing uh, university library and the data transmitting uh, mail system uh, were part of an overall media system that would allow the universities uh, to engage in a kind of recursive uh, and cumulative production of knowledge uh, over uh, the centuries. Um, the changing nature of the monarchy and uh, monarchical systems uh, would ultimately bring in a new form of knowledge organisation that would spell the end of monarchy itself as a dominant form of political expression and hegemony. Um, a characteristic, if you like, of the British and French monarchies uh, of the uh, 16th and 17th uh, centuries uh, is the shift to a more strongly territorial uh, notion of power consolidated around notions of cultural and linguistic specificity. So Henry VIII, uh, with his Act for the English Order, Habit and Language in 1537, um, which makes you know, English uh, uh, an obligatory language in Ireland, amongst other places, where the wearing of saffron, for example, is, is banned because this is the kind of the uppity natives wearing colour that so was re reserved for uh, the uh, dominant class. But, of course, Henry VIII wasn't alone in that. Uh, François Ier in France in 1539 uh, signs the Ordonnance de Villiers-Cotret, which makes uh, French the sole legislative language uh, of on French territory. And so they signal, if you like, the consolidation of royal power uh, around emerging notions of national uh, identity. When the French Revolution uh, begins uh, to put an end to uh, royal power, uh, the natural uh, context uh, for new institutionalised form of knowledge is uh, the uh, nation-state. Um, thus, we get the foundation of the École Polytechnique uh, in, in Paris in 1794, where the clear intention is to produce an educated uh, group of uh, graduates that would minister to the technical needs of the emergent public. The Prussian king uh, makes uh, university professors and uh, gives university professors and teachers the status of civil servants, and the conditions are right for the emergence of what Bill Reddings uh, will call uh, the Humboldtian uh, University. Uh, the purpose of this university, what I would call the, the National uh, University, we are, of course, here in what uh, was, uh, was referred to as the National University, is to prepare students to be future citizens of the state. Um, so the Bildung that is dispensed 
is not simply a matter of kind of individual character uh, formation. Um, it is also designed to prepare the future graduate for uh, public uh, service, hence the increasing emphasis on the teaching of national language, national geography, uh, uh, national history, uh, national uh, literature, and so on. And, and the marks of it are still with us uh, to this uh, day. Uh, insurgent nationalism, um, the collapse uh, of uh, empires, uh, and the anti-imperial and anti-colonial struggles of the 20th century in different parts of the globe ensure, if you like, the centrality uh, of the paradigm of the national uh, university as a form uh, of knowledge uh, organisation we find in both developed and uh, developing states uh, to the end of, or towards the end of the last uh, century. From the 1980s uh, onwards, um, a radical uh, reorganisation of the world uh, economic uh, system, um, loosely referred to as globalisation, uh, creates pressures for new forms of uh, knowledge organisation. If we think of what are the, what often seems the five main features of the globalisation era, growing frequency, volume, um, and interrelatedness of cultures, commodities, uh, and information, uh, and of peoples across time and space, the increasing capacity of information technologies to reduce and compress time and space, the diffusion of routine practices for processing uh, flows of information, monies, commodities, and peoples, uh, the emergence of institutions and social movements uh, to regulate, oversee, uh, or govern this, or indeed the emergence of movements globally to reject forms of uh, globalization. Um, we can see uh, how um, these uh, forms uh, become very, very diffusive uh, in all kinds of different uh, ways. Uh, other important contexts, of course, collapse of the uh, Soviet Union, the spectacular emergence of Asian uh, economies, which lead to a kind of fundamental shift in the, the basis of global uh, economic uh, production. So not surprisingly then, um, this kind of relentless drive towards deregulation and the globalization of production and consumption have created unprecedented pressures for the traditional paradigm uh, of the uh, national university and its form of knowledge uh, organization. Um, as Thomas Darty uh, claims in his uh, book Universities at War from 2000. And 15, um, virtually every, and I quote, virtually every university institution nowadays presents itself as somehow shaped or determined in its fundamental values and activities uh, by globalization, end of quote. So the most public face of the university uh, these days is ritually expressed in the corporate mission statement, uh, which, if you like, mixes the evangelizing zeal of monotheisms uh, with the corporate outreach of the transnational business uh, enterprise. Uh, the internationalization of university rankings, uh, the institutional implantation of campuses across different geographical territories, the uh, active recruitment of foreign students, only, of course, if the students are prepared to pay dearly uh, for this education, uh, and the vertiginous rise in the control and surveillance logic of corporate uh, managerialism, uh, all point, if you like, uh, to the movement of the university away from an earlier uh, nation-state uh, paradigm. Um, this is not to say that the national university has been totally uh, usurped by the corporate uh, university. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be having a discussion like when we're having about you know, uh, crossing borders, uh, transgressing disciplinary boundaries, and, and, and so on. Um, but it, it, it just as you know, when the... the, the 
uh, national state, the national universities there. There were still uh, reminiscences of the old uh, monarchical uh, university. But it's certainly true uh, that forms of knowledge organization uh, are shifting according to various kinds of uh, socioeconomic uh, pressures. The Australian theorist uh, Mackenzie Wark uh, argued in uh, Molecular uh, Red. <coughs> Excuse me, um, that the production and reproduction of our species being, whatever it may be, has to be a central concern of any uh, critical knowledge. So the challenge of the uh, Anthropocene, this, you know, loosely defined as the era of human induced uh, climate uh, change, is precisely, if you like, the need uh, to challenge uh, deeply held uh, assumptions. Uh, to think the uh, unthinkable uh, and to develop new forms of knowledge that are responsive not just to our current predicament, um, but to the planet that will be inherited by those who come after us. So the need, if you like, to orient knowledge to different ends by taking means uh, seriously uh, requires, I think, among other things, that we reconsider the infrastructures of knowledge, in particular uh, those that are whose avowed aim is the support and promotion of research, uh, namely uh, universities. So the question that might be asked, um, and I'm going to ask this question rather than uh, answer it uh, comprehensively, is whether universities, as they are currently constituted, are capable of the development of a critical knowledge that meets the current and future needs uh, of what Mackenzie Ward calls the production and reproduction of our species being. Um, the difficulty, it seems to me, is that the employment needs, uh, the nutritional needs, the educational needs of the planet's inhabitants cannot be met by a growth model which is predicated on the unsustainable and destructive use of increasingly scarce resources, whether this be water, land, uh, food, or knowledge itself, uh, which is frequently curled off these days in the auction rooms of the patents market. This is where I think we might speculate uh, on the emergence of the transitional uh, university, a form of knowledge organisation that is directed to the uh, creation of a carbon-neutral, uh, resilient uh, and sustainable uh, economy and society. So in what follows, I will try to suggest why at a conceptual level uh, the transitional university represents uh, a radical departure from conventional ways of accommodating uh, environmental issues. Uh, I then want to argue um, that consideration of the notion of, of, of translation, you'll see the way I'll be using it uh, in, in my lecture, can potentially help us to uh, engage with a number of core concerns uh, in new uh, critical forms of knowledge uh, organisation. Um, any organization is, at its most basic level, uh, a process that creates uh, an environment. It allows you to draw general lines in the fabric uh, of the whole. You make, if you like, some kind of cut uh, in the, uh, the universe to simultaneously uh, create and order an inside uh, from uh, an outside. So what kind of cut do we make when we're dealing with uh, climate change? Um, let's first consider a, a definition of climate change from the uh, organisation theorist uh, Nora uh, Campbell. 
Um, this, of course, is one of the things you're told to do in Lecture 101 uh, when preparing slides, is don't put too much text uh, on the uh, PowerPoint. So uh, I beg your indulgence as, uh, as I read uh, through it, but you can try and follow it there on the, uh, on the screen. Um, so she says, um, climate change is the moment I turn the engine of a car on and ignite the 165 million year old microscopic fossil uh, fanai, connecting me to the 35 billion ancient barrels that are drilled, fracked, refined and transported every single year. Climate change is the 100 trillion objects that are, that are in, that are the Earth, traversing the stomach lining of the Burmese python and the Atlantic meridian, meridional overturning circulation, which churns a quarter of the planet's heat flux. Climate change is the embodied and enacted operations of simplification, extraction, purification, replication, and acceleration, all of which are needed to create the philosophy of progress that is embodied by, every, by nearly every human in the world. Climate change is so unimaginably vast and complex that, to quote George Eliot, if we had a keen vision of all feeling and all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should die at the roar which lies on the other side of silence, end of quote. Uh, so in such a reckoning, climate change is the end of demarcation, the end of the background. So climate change, as expressed uh, here, is one of uh, Timothy Morton's uh, hyper-objects. Uh, so uh, what Morton understands by hyper-object is something that extends in space and time, that the attempt to capture uh, climate change in its totality is, is an impossible task. You can only come at certain uh, parts of it that it, because of the way in which what we do now extends into the future and how uh, we are connected to decisions that have made uh, at previous moments which have had these kinds of uh, climate change uh, outcomes. So three uh, constitutive features of climate change pose particular problems for knowledge and organisational response, but particularly for organisational response. They are unboundedness, uh, incalculability and unthinkability. Unboundedness because we can never be sure uh, what can be included in climate and what cannot be. As uh, Morton puts it in the heading to chapter two of his recent uh, Being Ecological, which came out last year in 2000, oh no, this year, this is 2018, isn't it? Yes, sorry, <laughs> to get out this year, 2018. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the, uh, the chapters is entitled, and the leg bone's connected to the toxic waste bone, and the toxic waste bone is connected to the sternum, and it goes on uh, like uh, that. And the list of connections is, of course, uh, endless. So this is uh, unboundedness. Uh, incalculability, because climate change involves complex non-linear systems that generate uh, untotalizable effects that defy known forms of planning and uh, organ organization. And lastly, unthinkability, uh, because we are continually frustrated in our desire to capture it empirically, uh, organizationally, or, or psychologically, as indeed uh, I'm trying to do uh, now in this uh, lecture. So what all of this implies, if you like, is that climate change is not some thing that can be uh, recuperated into existing institutional and infrastructural uh, frameworks. 
In other words, as uh, Nora Campbell uh, argues, the ontologization of climate change means that it is not so much a problem within the world we live in, but that it now constitutes the world. Uh, climate change, in other words, is so unbounded that it's not something outside uh, that can be internalized by uh, an organization. Uh, organizations can only uh, exist within as nothing can exist uh, outside of it. If, as the British uh, sociologist John Urry has claimed, uh, climate change entails, and I quote, uh, the total reorganization of social life, nothing more and nothing less, uh, then can we simply consider the matter of the environment as one topic uh, amongst others that can be safely accommodated in our green campus uh, programs, uh, our existing uh, institutional structures, or our existing uh, research uh, programs. To put this into context, I want to uh, allude briefly uh, to the notion of uh, advents um, that uh, Quentin uh, Meassou, the French philosopher, has developed in a book called uh, L'inexistence uh, divine, uh, divine uh, in existence. Uh, one of the things I noticed about <laughs> uh, young philosophers, they're like rock stars. You, you have to scowl if you can at the, uh, at the camera. So... Um, He's actually not a scholar. I've met him. Uh, he's a fairly um, genial individual. Um, but Mersu, um, in this uh, in Existence Divine, um, argues that there are three specific points uh, in the history uh, of the universe where there has been the emergence, emergence ex nihilo uh, of uh, distinct worlds. What he calls the world of the material, uh, the world of life, and the world of, of thought. And I quote... Um, so there seems um, so there seems to have been three uh, worlds of ir irreducible facts: matter reduced to what can be theorized in physical mathematical terms, life understood more specifically as a set of terms that is affections, sensations, causal perceptions, etc., which cannot be reduced to material processes, and finally thought understood as a capacity to arrive at the intelligible contents, bearers of eternity and which, as such, is not reducible to any other terms. So basically, what uh, Meosu is arguing, that these kind of three uh, advents, um, the advent uh, of, of, of matter, uh, where forms emerge that couldn't be uh, reduced uh, to their constituent uh, parts, that when life emerges as the second advent, uh, it is partly occasioned by the presence of material substances but cannot be reduced to uh, these material substances. Uh, and certainly when thought emerges, uh, it is certainly aided and abetted uh, by the, uh, the, the, the physical, chemical, uh, natural, but it can't be reduced to these. It is, it is uh, an, another uh, thing that, that is wholly distinct that uh, emerges. So advents for Meyasu uh, are forms of emergence uh, without uh, precedent. Uh, so in the transition from non-life uh, to life, uh, the laws uh, of biological life were not somehow contained uh, in the pre-life uh, world. So combinations that were inherent in the organization of the living could be imagined as possible cases of the world of matter, but not as latent uh, in it, as if it were some kind of ghostly uh, potential force. 
So in the transition from the, uh, the Holocene uh, to the uh, Anthropocene, um, we are arguably living through one of those radical discontinuities in the fabric of what has come before, uh, an advent moment that ushers in a new world. Uh, when we think, or when we pause to think of what the Holocene brought in its wake, agriculture, advanced, advanced forms of technology, uh, urbanization, animal domestication, uh, the birth of uh, languages uh, and uh, religions and translation, and the entry into a new geological era uh, characterized, as we noted uh, earlier, by unboundedness, incalculability, and unthinkability, uh, poses fundamental challenges uh, to our habitual forms of knowledge, uh, organization, and institutional expression. So what future uh, then uh, for the university? Since this is, you know, this is a day when we're uh, looking at research, PhDs, uh, a future uh, research. Uh, how might we uh, transition to the uh, transitional uh, university? Uh, and why do I think uh, a notion of translation uh, might be uh, useful for us in this uh, ethical uh, shift? Um, the, and here is where I want to introduce this, this notion of, of transversal uh, subjectivity. Um, the ontologization of, of climate change, or, or the apprehension of it as a kind of a hyper uh, object, where throwing away a styrofoam cup uh, now can impact on life in 400 years' uh, time, means that treating our uh, ecological condition, as I said, is yet another research topic uh, or disciplinary self-interest is a non-runner. In other words, I think the idea of presenting eco-criticism as kind of uh, the last post, it's yet another kind of theoretical fad, is to somehow mistake uh, what is uh, at stake. Um, and, you know, similarly, I think green campus initiatives, uh, as laudable uh, as they, they, they are, can be a form of cognitive dissonance um, that, uh, which why they should be pursued, uh, can often distract us, it seems, from uh, larger, uh, the more daunting question of finding forms of knowledge organisation that are adequate to our predicament. Um, the biologist uh, Edward uh, O. Wilson, uh, in um, The Future of Life, and in this book, uh, Half uh, Earth, uh, sees specific uh, long-range historical thinking as curbing humanity uh, in its, and I quote, its role as planetary killer, concerned only with its short-term survival. So Wilson argues that it's only when humans begin to think of themselves as species that they can begin to take uh, the longer view, not only as an important exercise in critical uh, self-understanding, but as a means of securing uh, the future. Uh, for uh, Rosie Bedotti, uh, uh, this move towards uh, species uh, awareness is a necessary uh, step towards post-anthropocentric uh, uh, identity. Um, so what is critical at the present moment, she argues, is the decentering of anthropos, uh, whom she defines as the representative of a hierarchical, hegemonic, and generally violent species whose centrality is now challenged by a combination of scientific advances and global economic concerns, uh, end of quote. So being, in her terms, a matter realist, being a materialist but a matter uh, realist, 
is uh, to take seriously our multiple connections uh, to natural and material uh, worlds. So if we conceive of the notion of subjectivity to include uh, the non-human, um, then the task for critical thinking uh, is, as uh, Bredotti reminds us, uh, is quite momentous. Um, this would involve in visualising or envisaging uh, the subject as, I quote, a transversal entity encompassing the human, our genetic neighbours, uh, the animals, and the earth as a whole, and to do so within an understandable uh, language. End of quote. So if we bear in mind what Bridotti has to say about emergent forms of uh, subjectivity, uh, that is, a, a transversal entity encompassing the human, uh, the animals, and the earth as a whole, uh, the emphasis is clearly on extended forms of uh, relatedness. What I would argue is that this transversal subjectivity uh, demands a notion or a concept of translation uh, if the relatedness is to be anything other than simple contiguity, something to be other than simple uh, juxtaposition. Um, thus, we might uh, imagine for a moment um, a very different kind of uh, organisation, very different kind of university, um, one that focuses uh, on the, the commons, right? This, this, this notion has become uh, very popular in ecological uh, activism. Um, so the commons um, are those goods such as the uh, water, the oceans, uh, the air, um, which have been regarded as mere externalities because they don't not the private property of any one individual, they're not given particular value, and therefore they are recklessly polluted, disregarded, and, uh, and so on. As somebody pointed out recently, uh, since four-fifths of our planet is made up of water, Earth is the wrong word to describe our planet. Uh, we should be called water. Uh, we should be called ocean. Uh, this would be a better term. To, but because there's this notion of it, that, that, that land that is something that privately appropriate, but the, the ocean becomes something uh, infinitely more problematic, uh, the notion of value gets attributed to one rather than the, uh, the other. Um, so if we have a, a, an elemental uh, university, um, we might have uh, a faculty of air, uh, a faculty of fire, a faculty of earth, uh, a faculty of water. What would it be like to work in a faculty of air, a faculty of water, a faculty um, of, of earth? Um, so I just want to, 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 to suggest this, this, this notion or to, 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 to park it with you uh, for uh, a moment as just beginning or suggesting how we might uh, recast uh, our institutional uh, arrangements um, so that we begin to take seriously these kind of neglected externalities uh, or uh, commons, um, which, uh, if you like, invites the notion uh, of, for example, if you have a, a faculty uh, of uh, water, you can see where we might have our physicists, our biologists, our engineers, our medical faculty, our computer science specialists, our philosophers, our comparative literature uh, scholars, uh, all uh, working together in a faculty of water, uh, one of the precious and most endangered uh, resources uh, on our, our planet. Um, but what this begs, though, um, this question, what I'm kind of suggesting um, is um, the question of how we deal with this question of translation, how we deal with this question of relatedness, 
and a relatedness that's not simply a form, as I said, of contiguity or uh, juxtaposition. Um, the question is, of course, um, an extremely uh, complex one, um, but I think one way uh, through it is through the concept of individuation um, that was developed by the uh, theorist uh, Gilbert Simondon uh, in the, uh, the 1950s and 60s, and then was subsequently used in part by uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix uh, Guattari. Um, Simondon was uh, resolutely uh, opposed to what he called the hierarchical subordination of matter to a transcendent, uh, tran transcendent uh, form, where he says the constituted individual is considered to be explicable on the basis of a principle of individuation prior uh, to it. Um, so, if we look at this from an Aristotelian perspective, uh, the idea is that in order to uh, create any, anything, you have to bring together form, so this is the, the morphe, and uh, a matter uh, hula. So, in the hylomorphic uh, model of creation, uh, form came to be seen as imposed by uh, an agent uh, with a particular design uh, in mind, a matter itself was passive and inert. Um, it was the thing that this form or design was imposed uh, upon. Um, the extraordinary uh, success of uh, Albertan uh, principles in architecture, the rise of the printing press, uh, and the Faustian uh, energies unleashed uh, by uh, mass production um, seem to be uh, incontrovertible proof of the validity of the hylomorphic model, where the architect's uh, blueprint, the printer's uh, hot plate, and the manufacturer's cast were the tangible proof of the power of preconceived design to be imprinted many times over uh, supine matter. So in this transitive model of production, human activity is regarded as the instrumental outcome of preconceived plans. In other words, um, that the notion um, that uh, Simondon is critiquing is what he sees as a malign form of the Aristotelian heritage, uh, where basically uh, you have this, uh, this, this, this notion, this uh, uh, idea, uh, which is then sort of imprinted uh, on passive or in inert matter, and this is then replicated any number of times. So when we have something, the, the printed copies are coming off the printing press, um, the, uh, the cast iron model, which is used uh, for uh, mass production, uh, the architectural principles, which are the blueprint, which then allow you uh, to create uh, the, 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 the building. Um, but this uh, leads to then a notion of uh, individuation, where individuation is the kind of the realization or the, manif the manifestation of some kind of latent design uh, principle of what constitutes uh, individuality. Um, for Simondon, uh, the difficulty of this approach is that it sees becoming, the notion of becoming, as the becoming of individuated being, so the realization of, of the blueprint, uh, rather than the becoming of the individuation of, of being. Um, what constitutes individuation in his eyes is the solution of a conflict, the discovery of an incompatibility the invention of a form, end of quote. Um, he describes this process in terms of a problematic disparation, the, the, the term that uh, he uh, uses. 
uh, and sees this as an act uh, or relation. So he takes this term from the psychophysiology of perception, where it designates the production of depth in binocular uh, vision. Um, each retina, if you like, is covered by a uh, bi-dimensional uh, image, uh, but the two images, of course, uh, don't uh, coincide. What we see uh, with both is we don't see uh, the same uh, thing uh, due to uh, differences in the parallax, the kind of angle at which uh, the eyes are seeing uh, these things. Um, so there's no available uh, bi-dimensional image that can resolve uh, the lack of coherence uh, between the two uh, images. So the way uh, the human brain deals uh, with bidimensional uh, disparation is by integrating it as the condition uh, of uh, coherence of a new axiom, which is tridimensionality. Tridimensionality is this property that emerges as a way of uh, resolving this particular uh, conflict. So uh, volume or depth perception resolves the bidimensional uh, conflict by actively creating a new dimension, uh, tridimensionality, in the absence uh, of the retinal image. So the perceptual uh, discovery is not a reductive abstraction, but an integration, an amplifying uh, operation. Uh, In-depth perception is achieved uh, not through the elimination of disparity, the elimination of the difference of the uh, parallaxes, but, and I quote, rather through an operation, an inventive construction that adds a new dimension that the isolated retinal image does not contain. It is the pair of disparate uh, retinas that require this amplifying operation, which is what constitutes a disparation, end of quote. So disparation is thus simultaneously problematic uh, and creative. Problematic refers to the disparity, uh, the difference between the retinal images insofar as this difference is not reduced to, but on the contrary, provides the opportunity uh, for the emergence uh, of, or the constitution of a new uh, dimension. Um, so rather than seeing disparation as simply a specifically psychophysiological uh, phenomenon, Simondon extends it to any uh, production of existence on whatever scale it is situated, physical signal, a living body, collective, uh, sort of collective body idea, and so on. Um, problematic disparation, as it is described by uh, Simondon, is remarkably uh, similar to translation, a new entity that emerges in the problematic gap between different languages, uh, which produces uh, forms of uh, singularity. Um, crucial from the point of view of what might underpin the operations of the transitional uh, university is that in Simondon, uh, we find a line of thought um, that goes from Spinoza to Bergson to Raymond Rouillet, uh, Guattari, Deleuze, uh, Bredotti, uh, Val Plummer, the feminist uh, theorist, and Timothy uh, Morton, uh, which argues for or prof professes a form of continuism. Yeah? Um, by continuism, this is the notion that matter, uh, organism, psychic and collective uh, individuation um, are occurring on the same plane. And in the words of, of Morton, the fact that interconnection is also a thing, not just an, abstract, an abstraction or convenient idea, has really a surprising uh, deep implications. 
So it's precisely, I would argue, the collapse of continuism, um, the dualistic separation of subjects and objects, uh, the instrumentalist, extractivist ideology of an inanimate universe that can be uh, manipulated by a select uh, animate species that has led us to this uh, sorry uh, ecological past. Uh, and one of the roles of the uh, transitional uh, university will be to look at ways of making that continuism uh, a constituent part of intellectual inquiry and pedagogical practice. Um, so this uh, involves uh, thinking about this concept of translation at a number of uh, levels. I'm going to very, very briefly, because I'm aware of, of time passing, um, so I just want to mention briefly three areas that seem to me to have implications for how uh, we conceive of or think about new forms of knowledge organisation. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, the indigenization of knowledge, uh, the idea of uh, projective uh, citizenship, uh, and what I'm going to call uh, transmissive kinetics. Let me start <clears throat> with the indigenous indigenization of knowledge. Um, I don't know if any of you here um, are fans of a uh, Canadian rock band called uh, Tragically Hip. Um, if you aren't, um, please go on to YouTube and check them out. They're really very good. But, uh, but very, very tragically, um, the lead singer, Gordon Downey, who is the, the, the main singer, songwriter, and so on, he uh, had an inoperable uh, tumour and... Um, before he, he died, they went on a uh, tour of, of Canada, uh, and they finally arrived in the uh, city of Kingston, uh, Ontario, uh, where the, the band uh, hailed from, um, and there's a, a very beautiful a documentary that's made about it, and he's sitting there, uh, and he's waiting to go on stage, of course, because he's this, this tumour, one of the problems is, is with memory, uh, and you know, short and long-term memory, and he says... Um, remember two words, because he knows that, that uh, Justin Trudeau uh, is in, in the audience, he wants, he's, he's, he's got a, a captive audience there, so he says, the two words I want you uh, to remember are First Nations, right? to remember the indigenous uh, peoples of, of, of Canada. Um, and one of the uh, most important um, characteristics um, of um, many indigenous forms of thought is what um, Elizabeth Cornelli has called geontologies. Right? In other words, the kind of the notion um, that there is some uh, distinction uh, between ourselves as thinking beings and this sort of inanimate uh, material universe is simply a kind of distinction that doesn't operate. I mean, the work that she was when she was working with indigenous peoples uh, in uh, uh, Australia, that notion of some kind of split uh, simply uh, didn't uh, operate. That the, that the world, and the Rune de la Tour has emphasized this again and again, is that the, 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 the material world is, non is, is alive uh, with uh, uh, energies uh, of uh, various kinds. So, so the notion of how we might think about our relationship uh, to that uh, non-human, that, 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 that other uh, world, and that one of the ways, uh, and this case has been made um, as well um, in Eduardo um, Gradel de Castro's uh, Cannibal Metaphysics from 2013, uh, where he talks about Amerindian peoples uh, and their cosmology, cosmologies of the future. Because he argues, rather than being engaged in a kind of survivalist, salvage anthropology, we need to think about how these cosmologies 
and conceptualizing the relationship between the human and the non-human are elaborating our developing conceptual frameworks for our future sustainability as, as, as a species, rather than some kind of quaint um, relic from the past uh, that we're going to save from extinction in order to leave and languish uh, in uh, museums. Um, the second um, notion uh, of um, that I think is, is going to be core to the uh, transitional universities, what I'm going to call a projective uh, citizenship. Um, one of the things um, that um, Doherty ferociously critiques uh, in universities at war is the kind of notion of um, the um, a kind of globalised cosmocracy where um, people just kind of they float around uh, there's no particular commitment uh, to, to any uh, particular uh, thing or, or good uh, or, or place. Um, and that, so in the modern university, it's the idea of the students uh, coming and going as kind of customers uh, who consume this particular product. Then they leave the university in order to maximize the kind of value uh, that's uh, attached to this uh, particular product uh, and, and so on. So in, 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 in effectively, uh, what you get, the only change of identity that occurs. It's not supposed to be kind of the building uh, notion, but it's the transformation of your kind of exchange value, uh, how much uh, you can then uh, auction yourself for in the, uh, in, in, in the market. So he says that this, the problem with this kind of extractivist logic uh, is that there's little concern uh, with the, uh, the public uh, good. Um, and it also is a misrepresentation of what people are. He says that public thing, that res publica, is there entirely because of our previously existing social relations, our being together. Instead of arithmetic, and I think he's thinking of just kind of you know, one number after another, he says, think geometry, literally the measuring of the earth and its constructed shape as an intrinsic and integrated uh, whole. So Charles Olson talks about uh, what he calls uh, projective geometry. In other words, it's not the question, you know, turning people into contigu contiguous objects that exist alongside each other, but to conceive of people in their relationships to each other, because this is what project what geometry is trying to do, is trying to conceptualize uh, those uh, relations in space as we exist uh, with respect to uh, others. And it's, it seems to me that one of the things um, that we are currently faced with is this particular problem of being trapped between two paradigms. Um, on the one, there's the kind of uh, make America uh, great again, uh, Brexit, uh, leave. Uh, so it's the sacralization of the, the nation. Uh, on the other, there is the kind of the, the free-floating, uh, commercialized global cosmocracy uh, that comes in, snaps up properties uh, in Dublin, uh, raises rent with absolutely uh, no regard for local conditions, uh, but just for a kind of uh, global income, which will then be parked in tax havens around the, uh, the world. So what uh, Latour uh, argues in uh, this uh, uh, most recent uh, book, uh, came out uh, early this year as well, Atelier pour s'orienter en politique, is that we need not so much to have the notion of uh, the globe or the nation right, as the two kind of opposites. So Macron saying, make uh, the planet great again, and Trump saying, make uh, America great again, the nation, um, but the earth. Right? In other words, to have an earth-based 
politics, um, which of course means that the the um, the, the local and the, the translocal are inextricably bound up uh, with each other. In other words, there's local investment, but local investment that must take cognizance of, of its connectedness uh, around uh, the, the globe. And finally, and of course this is slightly ironic in terms of the fact I've gone on for so long, <laughs> you probably wish, yeah, he's slow, right? Um, it takes him forever to get to, to come to a conclusion. Um, but it's this notion of um, the, uh, the extent to which the current kind of extractivist model is very much bound up with what the German uh, philosopher Peter Slotterdijk calls the kind of kinetic inferno, the, the, an acceleration of... You see with the modularization, semesterization of our systems, everything is you accelerate the kind of throughput of students, of knowledge, uh, through, the, uh, through our, our, our systems, because what becomes... Uh, highly prized is acceleration of mobility and circulation. So to what extent then do we need to uh, engage in a kind of um, uh, 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 forms of kind of resistance uh, to this transmissive uh, kinetics? And one of them, I would suggest, is to do with, with language itself. Um, one of the things I would argue that we need to think about is what I call the language commons, uh, I think often because we share uh, language, it's one of these things we share. Nobody uh, tries can actually uh, turn language into private property. I mean, Coca-Cola, McDonald's would if they could, but so far they haven't. Um, is that sometimes this language can be uh, uh, used and abused in, 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 in the grossest of, of, of fashions. And we see this spectacularly uh, across uh, the ocean, but we don't even have to go that far sometimes. Um, but do we need to consider then uh, the notion of uh, slow language, uh, slow uh, translation, um, a kind of care, attentiveness, uh, duty with respect to the use of, of language itself, which, which would be a way of challenging the kind of kinetic uh, inferno uh, of um, extractivism. And, and this uh, point is in uh, Hartmut Hose, this um, German sociologist, a very, very good book on acceleration, but his most recent book uh, that's come out is uh, on, on, on resonance, where he claims that there's far too much emphasis uh, in our thinking, both on the left and the right, on the maximization and the acquisition of resources, of economic, social, and cultural uh, capital. Um, and that we need to think about uh, more what he calls our kind of relationship to the world. Um, that we need to escape a kind of cumulative resource focus uh, logic uh, and think more about a kind of uh, a world uh, oriented relationship uh, logic in our uh, thinking. But now I'm going to finally slow down and come to a final uh, stop. And thank you for your. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can listen back to previous lectures in the series on the UCD Humanities Institute's website.